0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Media Mag Podcast, the podcast for students of film and media, or anyone who just wants to know more about media stuff. I'm media coordinator and education writer, Giles Goff. And I'm photographer and filmmaker, Phil Coleman. And in this podcast, we'll be taking some of the trickiest concepts in media and breaking them down into simple terms. But first, a little bit about ourselves. Phil and I have been making short films together for about nine years. and that long? Yeah, yeah. And we've been working on creative stuff ever since. Mm -hmm. Before I was a writer, I taught English and media for a little over a decade, whilst Phil has an MA in filmmaking and basically knows everything there is to know about the practical side of things. (laughs) In short, I'm the academic one, he's the technical one. It's a good dynamic and it works really well. (laughs) Yeah. So our first ever question comes from Lydia in Hampstead School.
1: Hi, I'm Lydia from Hampstead School. What is postmodernism?
0: So today in our section called The Theory Drop, we'll be looking at postmodernism, where it came from, who are some of the key thinkers and what it looks like. Phil, if you had to sum up
2: postmodernism in 10 seconds, what would you say? I'd say I'd need more than 10 seconds, to be honest, Giles. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, quite a, it's quite a broad concept, with, uh, which I don't know if you can sum it up in 10 seconds. Okay, well, by the end of this section, you'll be able to define it in
0: six seconds, okay? Ooh. And four four <laughs> seconds to spare. Four seconds to just play around with, if you want. Okay. Yeah, four seconds just to bank those four seconds for another day, you know. <laughs> okay, now it's time for the theory drop. <laughs>
2: I'm just imagining there's like you know this big dust cloud smoke we we walk out holding books it's it's beautiful you know <laughs> So just to let you know before we get into it guys, uh, this
0: act- this section will contain some mild spoilers for Blade Runner and One Division. So if you ask an academic what is postmodernism, you're almost certainly going to come away with it needing a dictionary to wade through and a reading list as long as you're on. And what I'm going to try and do today here is just give you some pointers on where to look to research further and give you like a basic understanding of the concept. Firstly, let's look at the title, post
2: modernism is it just me or is that like a rubbish title it feels very um very hospital walls very clinical you know (laughs) i think that's the best way i could probably describe it yeah because modern now
0: so how are we dealing with something that is after now surely that's the future right but to get your head around this to really get a good understanding of it you need to know what modernism as a movement is because postmodernism right. is relating to modernism. In essence, if postmodernism is the cheeky teenager, then modernism is the parent having the midlife crisis. Are you with me? that's a good way of putting it i like that thanks so basically right modernism as a movement comes about in the early part of the 20th century and you can sort of sum it up as like a loss of belief in things that we'd traditionally place our trust so god society government authority personal relationships all that sort of thing now, okay. just a, a quick question for you: What happened at the start of the twentieth century that just might make people lose their faith in all these institutions?
2: Um, well, there was that big war. Uh, there which was. I think there was quite there was a that, big war. In fact, you could, some called it the Great War. In fact, yeah. uh, and with good reason yeah, as well, it yeah. was. It affected pretty much
0: everybody. Yeah, exactly. So, if you imagine you're a soldier in the First World War, your generals. Uh, who are sort of supporting the the government that put you there? Who told you that this would all be over by Christmas? The the generals are now sending you over the front line into enemy fire, where you, where you or your mates are going to be mown down. If you're lucky enough to survive, there's not really the support system in place when you get home. Oh, and by the way, your girlfriend, who you love dearly, has just written you a Dear John letter. So it's not really that surprising that come the 1920s, there are a lot of people who no longer really believe in God. They don't really believe in love. They don't trust their governments anymore. That they, they was called the Lost Generation, right? You know, they, they were basically sort of more interested in sort of drinking and having a good time than anything else and the lost generation was basically the millennials of today in you know, of of
2: the of the past sorry sure yeah that makes sense so we get this strong sense of like disillusionment you with me of course i mean it was yeah. it was it was horrifying <laughs> and 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 i'd mm. be i'd I'd want i'd wonder about their mental health they weren't depressed you know so Absolutely. They must be hiding.
0: so around about this time we also get Friedrich Nietzsche's belief that God is dead coming out Marx's criticism of capitalist society obviously that's been around for a while but it really starts to sort of pick up steam yeah. even more and especially this after we've had the, the Russian Revolution and this feeling related to this the shift in perspective often tend to have a sense of, like, disappointment or betrayal and a rebellion against, like, these modern establishments. So if you think of it like this, if modernism is beginning to question authority, then postmodernism is making fun of authority to its face. (laughs) So postmodernism takes this concept of questioning traditional structures and just takes it a step further, There's this other critic called Roland Barthes. Have you ever heard of an essay called uh, Death of the Author? Yes, I have heard of that. I can't say I've read it, but I've heard of it. First of all, originally it's written in French and it's a a play on uh, Le Mort d'Arthur, but it's Le Mort d'Arthur, so the death of Arthur, the King Arthur story oh i see i get you right definitely the author instead exactly yeah so in it he went against the tradition when he said that a writer's opinions intentions or interpretations of their own work is no more valid than anyone else's you've seen blade runner yeah
2: absolutely it's one of my favorite films
0: so to give a, a, a simple example that means that just because ridley scott thinks deckard is a replicant doesn't mean that you the viewer have to think this if you don't want to whatever's In the text is what's important. What the creator of the text thinks isn't that much of an issue.
2: Interpretation is one of the great things about art and about cinema is that the audience can make their own decisions. That sort of autonomy is... kind of crucial for its longevity, in my opinion. Absolutely, absolutely. So audiences are free to interpret a work however
0: they choose, irrespective of whatever the creator thinks. So the death of the author is the next step after Nietzsche's God is Dead statement. And with it comes a need to kind of like push the boundaries on what a text is. So postmodernism can be found in literature, architecture, art, uh, all this sort of stuff. But we're really just going to focus on film and TV, because that's the stuff that we actually know about, okay? There's a few different key things that you tend to see with postmodernism. So you tend to see metatextuality, uh, intertextuality, pastiche and parody, uh, like a self-reflexivity and a mixing of genres. And we're just going to look at one or two of those
2: terms and really try and break it down what they are. Okay. So how would you define metatextuality? So I would describe metatextuality as if a piece of art is metatextual, then it is kind of aware of the fact that it is a piece of art and can reference itself and other things in 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 the wider media in the wider world yeah (laughs) absolutely spot on okay metatextuality
0: is where text draws attention to the fact that it's a text it points the the process (laughs) of its own creation let's take uh, an example for a fairly recent
2: film I, Tonya. Did you ever see the trailer for that? I saw the trailer for it, but I never actually got around to watching it. I mean, there's so many films. Oh, (laughs) you need to check it out. It's a phenomenal film.
0: So there's one bit in the trailer where Margot Robbie, in the title role of Tonya, she basically is chasing her boyfriend through the house, carrying a shotgun and it says and and she's shooting at him and whilst she's changing cartridges Tonya looks straight at the camera and says, I never did this. You know, so
2: it's a I think I have seen this. Is she like a figure yeah. skater or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, the one. Yeah, I have seen it. I'm just, I'm just so. an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: this is a brilliant example of metatextuality because the character is disagreeing with the story as it happens. This links very closely with the death of the author by making us question the reliability of the narrator. So we as an audience need to trust the storytellers in films or else we run the risk of rejecting the whole thing so one of the things you see in metatextuality is like the unreliable narrator you know we we normally have to rely on exactly what the narrator's saying that we trust that they are telling us the truth and an unreliable narrator is really sort of questioning that and kind of undermining it as you go along Mm -hmm. another brilliant example of metatextuality have you ever seen stranger than fiction i have not Um, And I definitely haven't seen that one this time. (laughs) So that is a massively underrated film. It's one of my absolute favourites. It's got Emma Thompson narrating the life of Will Ferrell's character, Harold Crick. And there's a brilliant shot in the trailer where we see Harold brushing his teeth. And in the voiceover, it says, When other minds would fantasise about their upcoming day, Harold just counted brushstrokes. And then at that point, Harold stops, spits out the toothpaste and says, all right, who just said Harold
2: just counted brushstrokes? I'm an idiot. I have seen that film. <laughs> I forget. I forget what I've okay. seen. I forget what I've seen. Well, yes, yeah. I have seen that film. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's it's absolutely excellent. Yeah. And when he said Emma Thompson and Will Ferrell, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> that one, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so.
0: yeah. yeah I love that it. film with my whole heart. That's fantastic. Obviously, when we hear a voiceover and we see like non diegetic sound being used in it, we don't expect the character to then be able to respond to it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I love that. I thought that was such a great
2: device in that film. Yeah. It just did, it just again, just that that whole thing informed the entire plot and it was wonderful loved it
0: absolutely just hooks you in right from the start so we have a we have a character who breaks a narrative film convention by showing awareness of like this omniscient narrator the film mm. then goes on to follow Harold as he tries to find the apparent author of his life and tries to get her to change the ending because in it he's he finds out from the voiceover that he's going to die yeah he's like what <laughs> so it's a film that's metatextual because it lets the protagonist know he's in the story and draws attention to the, the absurdity of the non-diegetic voiceover Mm -hmm. metasexuality can really force audiences to examine the very forms of filmmaking and the assumptions it brings with it but like what happens when these questions go beyond the style of the filmmaking and starts to influence the content of the narratives have you ever heard of a theorist jean-francois Lyotard? the name rings a bell basically he says in the postmodern condition which is one of the first text to use the phrase postmodern he says the grand narrative has lost its credibility and it's easy to see how some institutions are questioned so religion as an institution has historically lost followers over the last few centuries secular ideologies such as Marxism have seen to fail when put into practice and the American dream has failed more times than it can count at this point you know (laughs) so what happens when this scepticism is applied to another far reaching institution such as the media? Uh, People are forced to rely on media institutions to give us a, a global picture of the world we live in. Like we literally, we can't be there for everything. Sometimes we have to rely on what people are telling us, don't we? Yeah, of course. I mean,
2: we're not omnipresent, so yeah. we can't see everything all the time.
0: So, as media audiences have got more sophisticated over the years, we realise on some level or other that the images that we see are being mediated to not necessarily give us the whole story. Absolutely, yeah. So then this brings me on to like this kind of anxiety over like what is real and what isn't. And this leads me on to another key postmodern thinker, my absolute man, Jean Baudrillard. Oh, yeah. I hope I'm pronouncing that dude's name right. So anyway, he has this brilliant quote. I'm going to give you a moment to get a pen and paper if you want to write this down, because this is awesome. The distinction... <laughs> to write, you don't actually have to get a pen and for paper out. Oh, is that for me? <laughs> it's not for me. <laughs> I'll just send you my notes, it's fine.
2: <laughs> okay. Anyway,
0: Baudrillard had this brilliant quote where he says, the distinction between what is real and what is imagined is continually blurred and meaning is systematically eroded. So in terms of films, the anxiety over what is real and what's not starts to get to, to turn up in films like The Matrix or The Truman Show or Inception. Do you remember when Cobb's wife in Inception, she wants to live in the dream world because she believes that that's the real world to her, you know? Yeah,
2: the dream became her reality. That's such a sad part of that film yeah, as right. well. It really yeah, got right. me that.
0: Oh yeah, spoilers for Inception, by the way. Um <laughs> So like what happens when your main character is like too attached to this simulated world? Well, Baudrillard puts it in this way. He says the simulations of reality end up becoming more real than real. And a really, really good example of this from recent times, did you see uh Vision?
2: Oh, did I? What a great show. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. It was wonderful.
0: Yeah. It was amazing, wasn't it? So again, spoilers for Wonder Vision if you haven't um, if you haven't seen it already. But Wanda basically whilst dealing with trauma, she reinvents this small town of Westview into like a like a sort of nineteen fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties sitcom. And Vision, who has been killed by Thanos again spoilers for infinity war had a few years now though you know what I yeah mean, so. yeah if you, if you haven't <laughs> seen infinity war by now that that's on you that is all on you okay <laughs> so she, what she does in that is that she creates her own version of vision like entirely from scratch and essentially making him here's a word you're going to like a simulacrum of the original vision Oof. Ooh, um, that's a good it's, word. <laughs> yeah, but it's a it's a very faithful copy, and then he ends up becoming more more real than real to her.
2: Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he ends up becoming sort of almost like a comfort because even though he's not the real Vision, he's just as real to her because she doesn't want to accept that he's gone. Absolutely.
0: So you get to see that sort of more real and real anxiety. Shown brilliantly there. I mean, if you wanted to see it in anything else, you could look at shows like Humans, or you could look at films mm. like Blade Runner, or Battlestar Galactica, or Westworld. This constant anxiety about what's real and who's real, and the mm. fact that in a lot of cases, we find it easier to empathize with characters than real human beings. Do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: When we get to the heart of it, here's what I really like about postmodernism is that it's actually really so much fun, okay? It can be used to be, like, groundbreaking and traditional at the same time. We have films that seem to jump between postmodern and traditional like an aggressive game of hopscotch. Okay. (laughs) One of the most postmodern metatextual, intertextual films you're going to see is Deadpool, right? Oh, yeah, 100%.
2: Man's the king of it.
0: Either he's got metatextual quips. He's got references to, like, the Green Lantern film or the other things, the rest of it. So really sort of pushing the boundaries in a lot of areas, right? And, yet, yeah, he's still a charismatic hero that gets powers fights bad guys, and gets the girl at the end. You couldn't get much more traditional of a storyline if you
2: tried. It's a traditional storyline with a completely non-traditional character with yeah. powers, with the power of metatextuality. You know what I mean? It's ridiculous. Absolutely.
0: So when I said that um, that you could sum up postmodernism in six seconds, we're going to do that now. Okay, you ready? Oh, this oh is... no. Okay,
2: okay. Okay. Oh. <laughs> All right, go on then.
0: Here we go. Postmodernism is a cultural movement that distrusts all established philosophies and frequently experiments with the medium it is presented in. Write that one down, listen to it again, and when your teacher asks you, say that one to them, you will sound really smart i promise you
2: i i already feel smarter having listened to it so you know you you, you want to get that one written <laughs> down it's that's really good <laughs> does that sum it up then do you feel confident that you you get a
0: better understanding of a postmodernism?
2: yeah much more than i did when i first started again like you know you've i think you've uh, managed to sum it up quite nicely i think being able to sort of to be able to attach that movement to like modern piece of art and film and such that um that you can that you may have seen and being able to recognize it, I think that really helps as well. Absolutely. So, guys, we've got a homework question for you,
0: one for you to study up in your own time. What film or TV shows from the last five years can you think of that has either intertextuality, metatextuality, or any other postmodern concepts? That's what I want you to look at for me. Okay. Now it's time to hear about the new issue of Media Magazine, and here to tell us about issue 77 is our Editor-in-Chief and fearless leader, the Perry White to our Clark Kent and Lois Lane, Claire Pollard. (laughs) Hi! Hi Claire, how are you doing today? Hi
1: Claire. I'm good, thanks. How are you guys?
0: Yeah, we're doing good.
2: Not bad, So we have a
0: Viking on the front cover.
1: We do have a Viking. Yeah, this is uh, Ivor from Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Uh, (laughs) Either of you gamers? Have you played it?
2: I haven't played it, but I'm an avid gamer. Uh, I, I really want to get a hold of this one because it looks awesome.
1: It does look great. The images we've got for it are fantastic. So yeah, it's written by um, Ricky Kingshot and this is a new set text for students who are studying A-Level Media Studies with EDUCAS. It's a really great article. The thing that jumped out for me is that that you can choose the gender of the main character, so you're Ivor, whether you're Lady Ivor or Gentleman Ivor, and the story's the same, the events are the same, the kind of character has the same characteristics, but the gender is interchangeable, and you could switch halfway through as well, which I thought was really interesting.
2: Awesome, that is interesting. That you can switch halfway through. Do you want to tell us about the Division article? Do
1: you know what? I had media teachers tripping over themselves to pitch yeah. pieces about WandaVision. I think you were one of those. Charles, I
0: absolutely was one of those, those teachers. <laughs> uh, I was like, Oh, oh, do you want to talk about And so, yeah, Caroline Reed got in there before me, so she is now my nemesis. Uh,
1: she was quick off the mark. I think like at the end of episode one, she must have like had the email. Up and was um, was pitching. She's like, I still yeah. don't know what it's going to be because I've got to watch several more episodes, but can I backseat it? So um, that's what happened. I just love the idea that she's sort of constructing this whole kind of narrative within her own kind of internal psyche and that even mm. the adverts kind of reflect her experiences.
0: One of the things that got me about Caroline Reed's article was the way that fans were approaching it. They were like, could this be Mephisto or could that be Mephisto? And everyone's trying to take something from it from their own selves and their own. Side and she linked it in with uses and gratifications and I was like damn I wish I'd thought about that that's an awesome <laughs> one.
1: I think if you're a big fan then there's a lot of easter eggs and kind of references in there that you get but she assured me that even as a Marvel idiot I would still probably really enjoy it. What I do love is sitcoms and this idea of kind of reflecting the evolution of sitcoms throughout the ages is something that also really appealed to me. We managed to get loads of media teachers um, to just write tiny little kind of theory paragraphs like for the sidebar so you're in there we've got one on kind of gender so we managed to get a few different perspectives in on that on that particular
2: show even if you're not versed in the Marvel universe it's still a great mystery it's got so many great plot points in there and so much intrigue that can just draw you in whether you're a fan of the series or not as a whole as far, the universe as a whole and um, it's a great text to be able to sort of like really get your teeth into especially if you study media
1: what else is in there there's a really nice article well nice is an interesting word for me to choose called bad bitches of (laughs) hip-hop which is about exactly the opposite women not being nice um women being nasty and being confident and body confident and talking Mm -hmm. about sex and it's about how women in the sort of like hip-hop genre are now as open about sex as men have been for years Tilly Sapiano, who wrote that, we had a great email back and forth about this issue of like our examining our kind of response as women to women who make videos like Cardi B. Our sort of initial response kind of might be, oh, what is she doing? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But then seeing the positives in that and kind of seeing that it's it's the patriarchy that shapes the way that we react to these things initially?
0: I have been a hip-hop fan ever since I heard California Love by Tupac. And <laughs> speaking as an evolved 21st century man who self-identifies as a feminist, the amount of cognitive dissonance to be a hip-hop fan that you have to have is absolutely staggering. Like, I don't agree with it on any level, but, oh, flippin' heck, those tunes are awesome, though. Sucker for a beat, though. S- that's the thing. Oh,
1: what, this, do you mean the sort of masculine hip-hop? Masculine hip-hop? I mean, like...
0: Like, all the ones they're talking about with Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion and, and all these ones, they're great, but I'm a, I'm a little bit more 90s, so Lil' Kim was doing this long before anybody else uh, came along and Missy Elliott or Debrat, so.
2: Yeah, I don't think you sound old at all because I'm a big Missy Elliott fan. I mean, Phil, you were basically born last week, weren't you? Yeah, no, I'm still learning a lot. Like, walking's been a challenge and, (laughs) you know, what is this internet thing?
0: And, of course, you have the Dask Films production tips written by my good self. And who's there right on the very last page? Oh, is that me? That is you, my friend. That is you. What a
2: surprise! (laughs) Yes, you can see my my lovely face there in there as well. We're doing examples of how to make a static car look like it's moving. I was really proud of that one. If your media department is a subscriber to
0: Media Magazine, then you'll be able to pick up a copy from all good and evil school or college librarians. And if your school (laughs) is not a subscriber, then just go to www.englishandmedia.co.uk forward slash media hyphen magazine to subscribe and we will say no more about it. Claire, thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute joy to see
1: you. Oh, great to talk to you both. Thank you. Good to see you, Claire.
0: (laughs) Now it's time for... (gasps) Two Minute Terminology Time!
2: Two Minute Terminology Time! (laughs) This is where (laughs) Phil
0: explains a media concept or a piece of terminology in absolutely no more than two minutes and you will be being timed. Our first question for this section comes from Ellie in Whitby.
1: Hi Giles and Phil, my name is Ellie and I study media at Browbridge School of College. I was
0: wondering
2: if you could tell me. What is chiaroscuro?
0: Okay, two minutes on chiaroscuro.
2: Are you ready? I am ready. Three, two, one, go. Chiaroscuro, meaning light-dark in Italian, is a lighting technique used in cinematography used to indicate extreme low-key, high-contrast lighting. The technique originates from the use of one of the canonical painting modes of the Renaissance, of the same name, used most famously by painters such as Rembrandt, Caravaggio and Goya. This technique uses an extreme version of a lighting technique I mentioned a moment ago, known as low-key lighting, where the dark parts are very dark and the light parts are very light. Imagine if you switched on one lamp in a room with no windows and all you can see is whatever that lamp's light touches, and nothing else. That's on the right lines. In cinematography, this was most noticeably used as a visual technique in many films in German Expressionism, an art movement born out of the turmoil felt by many artists after World War I. Artists such as Fritz Lang, who created the 1927 science fiction masterpiece Metropolis, um, used this quite a lot as well. In modern-day film, this kind of technique has informed many stylistic choices in Western cinema, most notably in film noir and horror. This can be seen in films such as The Third Man, Apocalypse Now, and The Maltese Falcon. The most directly intended use of this would be in Kubrick's film of Barry Lyndon from 1975. In that film, he achieved a chiaroscuro effect by lighting the whole film film with candles and using a specially designed camera system that can handle exposing film in low light. This allowed him to create the extreme low-key lighting needed for this effect. Ooh, is that you done? Oh, that's me done.
0: <laughs> One minute and twenty-four seconds. That is awesome. Well done. Thank you very much. I'm very proud of myself so, for that. Yeah, that was good. Uh, do you know what? I was watching Saint Maud, the film that came out recently about a, uh, a nurse who has mental health problems. And oh yeah, there's lots of chiaroscuro using there, really
2: sharp uh, light and uh, shadows in there, and it looked really I, evocative. I'm itching to shoot. I'm itching to shoot a film myself using a lot of chiaroscuro, just because I really like the lighting techniques and. Mm. I'm hoping can sort of write that into a uh, into a film that I want to make at some point well
0: it's essentially just not using a fill light a lot of time is it you know just not yeah, using a fill or, or
2: just a, just a key a lot of time it's literally just using less lights mm. if you can use one light and light the whole scene, Kira Skuro. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so basically, if you are absolutely strapped for cash and equipment and you can only afford one light, then say you're influenced by German expressionism. That's basically what yeah, we're saying. Basically, isn't yeah, basically tell them that Frick Slang's your boy.
2: That's all you got to say. <laughs> <laughs>
0: awesome sauce okay well that is us done for today ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for joining us on this first episode we hope you enjoy it if you'd like to leave us a review that would be absolutely fantastic and we will see you soon bye bye the media mag podcast is hosted by giles golf and phil coleman mixing by phil editing by giles our theme tune is composed by Rick Lee. media mag podcast is a dask production created for the english media center please rate and review, unless it's a one star, in which case please tell Phil through the medium of historically accurate cave paintings.